Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join our preacher for the message. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you tonight. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Uh, Thank you for all those who who are logged in via Zoom or on Facebook. I don't know if you guys remember, but last week, Pastor Bernie gave a wonderful message about God's sovereignty over our lives. Pastor Bernie told us God's revealed will to us, and he revealed that it is God's will for Christians to suffer. I know that may be difficult for you guys to understand, as it is for most people, but nevertheless, God's word teaches us that it is God's will for him, for Christians to suffer. So I want to start off by telling you guys a story about a well-known preacher from the 1940s. His name was Charles Templeton. This man was a friend and a roommate of famous evangelist Billy Graham. Not only were they roommates, but they toured all throughout Europe, um, and they preached to thousands and thousands of people. They even filled football stadiums, and many people came to Christ from their preaching. Not only was Charles Templeton a famous evangelist, but he also was a pastor. He was a pastor of a church of over 1,200 members. So you would be very surprised to hear that such a man would end up falling away from the faith. Yes, it is true. Charles Templeton even wrote a book titled, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. American Magazine wrote about him and said, that he had set a new standard for mass evangelism, but that meant nothing because he ended up falling away. In his book, we find many of basic rejections for Christianity, but there's one that stood out among the rest, and that was his problem with the idea of evil and suffering in the world. In his book, he wrote that Alzheimer's would not exist if there was a loving God. Mr. Templeton went on to explain the horrors of Alzheimer's disease by even describing it in gripping detail the way it hideously strips people of their personal identity by rotting their mind and memory. It turns out that shortly after he wrote this book, he ended up being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And I tell you this story because Mr. Templeton is not the only professing Christian to fall away from the faith on account of suffering. Many, many Christians fall away because of suffering. But tonight, I have good news. Why? Because God is going to teach us how to have a godly perspective on suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, God is going to teach us to look towards glory by keeping three perspectives in mind so that we do not lose heart. We're going to see that sanctification leads towards glory. We're also going to see that suffering leads towards glory and that seeing leads towards glory. So before we get into the text, I just want to give you guys some background. This particular passage of scripture was written by the Apostle Paul. This is not his first letter to the Corinthians. It's actually his second letter, and that's why it's titled 2 Corinthians. The Corinthian church is a mixed congregation. He's writing this letter to Uh, Jews and Gentiles, if you guys are wondering what a Gentile is, a Gentile, all it means is a non-Jew. 
In this letter, Paul is going to talk to us about his joys, sorrows, ambitions, and frustrations. Some scholars say that this is the most biographical of Paul's letters. It tells us more about Paul as a person and as a minister than any of his other epistles. Paul's aim in this letter is to defend his apostleship, exhort the church, and confront apostles head-on. It turns out that false apostles had infiltrated the Corinthian church, and they were speaking ill of Paul. They were assaulting Paul's character, and they were sowing seeds, uh, sowing discord among believers. They were also teaching false doctrine. So in tonight's passage, Paul is going to give us insight into what motivates him when he is in the face of suffering. So let us begin. In verse 16, it says, So we do not lose heart. That's the way that it starts. Paul begins with the word so. And if you guys remember, Pastor Bernie always teaches us that when a passage of Scripture begins with a conjunction such as so, therefore, because of, it is very important to look at the preceding text to establish the proper context. But what I find interesting is that in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul uses the same phrase. He says, we do not lose heart. Paul uses this phrase two times in one chapter alone. So it is evident that he is trying to give a very important message about not losing heart to the Corinthians. But, but why? Why would they lose heart in the first place? Let us look a bit deeper into the chapter, starting in verse 8. Paul says that we are afflicted in every way. And I'm only going to bring up the negatives. He says we're afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He goes on to say that we who live are always being handed over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He says that death is at work in us. What we see here is Paul is describing all the death-like suffering that he had to endure in his ministry. Paul was persecuted in a way that I don't think you and I could relate to. And the reason why I say this is because in Acts chapter 23, verse 12, we read that men conspired together to not eat or drink until they had murdered Paul. Paul, people wanted Paul dead so badly that they made a pact that they would not eat or drink until he was found dead. Could you imagine that? It's just amazing. How could this man not be discouraged after all of this? How could he not lose heart? How could he not go into despair? How could he not give up? And I think it's because his focus was in the right place. So let's continue in the text. It says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. If you're wondering what is our outer self, I think it is evident our outer self can be translated as our physical body. And according to this text, our physical body is decaying. It is wasting away, which in the original language, it means that it is spoiling. It is becoming corrupt. It is decaying. It is in the process of being destroyed. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. What this means is that people are like grass, and their beauty is like the flower in the field. People wither, and their beauty fades away. And we see that clearly in our daily lives. When we are young, we think of ourselves as very beautiful. And then we get older, we get wrinkled, and we're just in the process of decay. So it is very important for us to understand our mortality. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And I know many young people don't see it that way. If you're young, you're thinking that you're going to live 30, 40, 50 more years. But that is, that, that is not true. We don't know what's going to happen. When we leave here tonight, we don't know if we're going to go and see the Lord and, and judgment is going to come. We do not know. The Bible says that our life is like a vapor. It vanishes very quickly. Poof. Gone. Unfortunately, this world seems to have a high focus on the physical part, on the, on, on the outer self. If we look at all the plastic surgery that is taking place in America, as a matter of fact, let me quote this. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, Americans spend more than $16.5 billion in cosmetic plastic surgery alone, and this is in 2018. I couldn't find one for 2019. But one thing is for sure, this number is rising year to year. And what is it revealed about us? It reveals our vanity and our preoccupation with the way that we look. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with taking care of your body. It is okay to exercise. It is okay to eat healthy. After all, the Bible does tell us that our bodies are what? The temples of the Holy Spirit. We know that physical training is of some value. The Bible teaches it. It says that physical training is of some value, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. So it's important for us um, to realize that Physical exercise, yes, we, we, get, we exercise, we get strong in this present life, but in heaven, that's not really going to matter. And how does God even judge us in the first place? Is God really concerned with our outer self? No. God does not judge us by our outward appearance, but rather what is in our hearts. I want to illustrate this point by, um, if you will, turn to 1 Samuel Chapter 16, verse 7. Listen to what God told Samuel as he was searching for the future king of Israel. God tells Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. If you're wondering what is going on here in this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel, Samuel is called by God to anoint the future king of Israel. He goes to Jesse's house, 
And Samuel thinks that God is going to choose the eldest son, the son that is the most built, most handsome, most tall. That's what Samuel thinks because he's looking with his eyes only at the outward and not the inward. But God ends up choosing David. Why? Because David was a man after God's own heart. My brothers and sisters, let's not be preoccupied with the way that we look. Remember that what is important is what's in here. Do not be like the Pharisees who were only concerned with their outward appearance. Remember what Jesus told them. He said, he told them that they were hypocrites because outwardly they appeared beautiful. They wore fancy clothing. But within, the Bible tells us, they were unclean. They were full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus told them, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. The inside of the cup is our inner self. And if we continue on verse 16, it says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So our inner self is the spiritual part of ourselves, the unmaterial part of ourselves. It is our soul and our spirit. Some people define the soul as the seat of our emotions. I like to think of it as our heart, mind, character, and thoughts and feelings. If you are a Christian, your spirit goes to be with the Lord when you die. But while in the body, the goal is sanctification. The Bible teaches us that sanctification is God's will for us. We learned that last week already. And if you kind of don't understand what sanctification means, it's related to the word saint. Both words have to deal with holiness. To sanctify something is to set it apart for a special use. But to sanctify a person is to make that person holy. So sanctification, um, according to how it's taught in Scripture, it's a three-stage process. Or if you will, it carries three different tenses. The Bible tells us that we have already been sanctified, right? Meaning set apart for God. And this happened when we first believed the gospel. What God did is he performed spiritual heart surgery when he saved us. He replaced our hardened and callous heart and he put in a softened heart that is set after him. So we know that we are already set apart. The Bible tells us that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit when we first heard the word of truth. So we have the Holy Spirit already. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us now, and through the Holy Spirit, we are being sanctified. So this is the present tense right now. We are being sanctified. We were already sanctified in the past when we believed the gospel. To make this point, listen to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, We all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
What this means is that the Holy Spirit is the one transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. Future sanctification, if you're thinking about what I meant by that, that will come to fruition when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus Christ returns, our whole person will be whole. Our body, our soul, and our spirit. Now, does this mean that we have no part in our sanctification? By no means. The Bible says that we are co-workers with God and that we work with Him to sanctify ourselves. So our role in sanctification is not just passive. We do not just cross our arms and just tell ourselves, oh, I don't have to do anything. God is doing it all. No. Sanctification is also active. God does the work in the inside, and then we are responsible for carrying that work out. Remember that God has already declared you holy if you are a Christian. So you are to live out your lives that way. Walk in holiness, you're already holy. And we do this by obeying God's word. I am reminded in Jesus' high priestly prayer when he is praying to the Father. He, t- he prays to the Father and he tells them, Father, sanctify them with the truth. But what is the truth? The Bible tells us that the truth is God's word. That is what Jesus said. In the Bible, we find instruction for godly living. And the more obedient we are to God's word, the more useful we will be to him. Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here, Paul is likening God to a great and big house and Christians as vessels or instruments in that house. Some are used on occasions of honor, such as the gold and silver vessels, and some are used for dishonor. So the way that I like to think of it is some are are like gold and silver vessels and some for dishonorable use, such as like a garbage bin or an ashtray. If we cleanse ourselves from dishonorable things, according to this, God will regard us as vessels of honor, sanctified and useful for the master. And in verse 22, we learn how to cleanse ourselves. This is our portion. By running away from youthful lusts. And when I looked into that, what, what marks one's youth? It's usually sexual temptation, illicit pleasure of the flesh, and a longing for fame and glory. 
So we are to run away from that. But we don't just run away from something. We run away and we run towards something else. So here we are instructed to pursue righteousness, to pursue faith, to pursue love and peace. Cleansing can never be just a matter of avoiding bad things. It must also be the pursuit of good things. Therefore, there are both things that we must flee from and things we must pursue. So not only does sanctification lead towards glory, but also the suffering. In verse 17, it says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is saying that the tribulation, the anguish, the persecution, the burden, the trouble, he is saying it is all light. And I am amazed that he considers it light. Why do I say this? He gives us more insights into his afflictions. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he describes in detail all the suffering, and he does it in this manner. He says, five times he received 39 lashes. Three times was beaten with rods. He was stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from outsiders, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and even danger from false brothers. He goes on to say that he had to suffer through tremendous amounts of sleepless nights, that he was hungry and thirsty, often without food, in cold and exposure. But Paul considers his afflictions light. Why? Because he is comparing it to something else. And I know many of us here today, we are suffering. I know some of us have illnesses, some of us have pains, some of us are even persecuted for our faith, not only here, but throughout the world. And we may be thinking to ourselves, really, is my suffering really light? But I want to give you a perspective. I, I want to show you what to compare it to. Compare it to the eternal weight of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Jesus promised to prepare a place for us, for us, for us true Christians in heaven. And the Apostle John, how privileged was, was he to see and report on this heavenly city. He reports about it in the book of Revelation. John saw that heaven possesses the glory of God, the very presence of God. I don't know if you guys know this, but God is the dwelling place. I mean, heaven is the dwelling place of God. That is where he lives. So in heaven, we will experience the beauty, the brilliance, and the majesty of his splendor. Right now, we can't, we can't experience it fully because we are in this flesh. But one day, God is going to give us a new and glorified body so that we can be in his presence. Not only that, the Bible says that heaven has no light because the Lord himself is light. 
The city is filled with the brilliance of costly stone and crystal clear jasper. Heaven is also paved in gold, and the walls are made of jewels. Some theologians think that the reason why the walls are made of jewels and the floor of gold is because these things will reflect his light. In heaven, everything will reflect the beauty and splendor and majesty of God. Now, the challenging part that I had with this verse is due to the word preparing. Verse 17 is implying that suffering is preparing something in and for us. This means that it is bringing about something. It is working something out in us. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know, check this out, that suffering produces, similar to preparing, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. Did you catch that? He says, we glory in our sufferings now. Suffering right now produces glory in us now by bringing about godly character. It is a tool that God uses to draw us closer to himself. It is a tool that God uses to bring about spiritual strength within ourselves. As we suffer, we develop patience and perseverance. And if you're a Christian, and if you have ever been tested, what do trials reveal about you? It reveals your genuine faith. False Christians cannot endure trials. They always fall away, as was the case with Mr. Charles Templeton. He fell away because he did not have his eyes set on the glorious God. And we have an example um, that Jesus gave us in his parable of the sower. Jesus likened it to a farmer who went out to sow some seed. And along the way, some seed fell on the path. Some seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. Jesus went on to explain what this meant. He explained that those on rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they heard it. But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Did you catch that? Jesus said that when some people are tested, they fall away. We know as Christians that being a Christian is not easy. It is not easy at all. But yeah, you have televangelists, false teachers and preachers telling you that if you come to Christ, that you're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity. Well, let me tell you something, my brothers and sisters. That is heresy. That is not true. Jesus and the prophets and everyone, you can, it is beautifully illustrated in Scripture that suffering is a part of a Christian. It even says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, the more faithful that you are here, the more bold 
that you are here. The more you pursue godliness here, the greater will be the hostility of those around you who reject the truth. But consequently, the greater will be your capacity for glory in heaven. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He said, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And this is the perspective that Paul had. And we see that in verse 18. So follow with me. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So far we have, we have learned that our bodies are transient. The word transient means to endure only for a little while, for a time. It is temporary. We can see our bodies, but we cannot with our eyes see within our bodies, like our souls or our spirits. Our souls are eternal. And when we die, the soul is separated from the body. The Bible says the body returns to dust, right? And the soul goes to its eternal dwelling place. Not only are our bodies temporary, but so is the world around us. If you consider for a moment, you know, your homes, consider your cars, your cell phones, everything that you use on a daily basis, it is, it is perishing. Um, just the other day, my wife and I, both of our cars, um, we had to take to be repaired. One had something messed up um, with the door. Um, the other car, it was leaking. And even our home, just a couple of weeks ago, the AC wasn't working. Everything in this world is in the process of decaying. It is all withering away. Nothing in this world lasts at all. So everything that we can see with our eyes is here today, but gone tomorrow. So what point is there in valuing what is temporary versus what is eternal. Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world but yet forfeit his own soul? What profit is there? Only a fool would give up his eternal soul for a temporary pleasure. And Paul knew this, which is why he kept his focus on Christ and the glory that awaited him. Listen to what Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus Christ is our life. People should recognize that Jesus Christ is everything to you. They should see that the reason why you live is him, that everything that you do is for him. For other people, they can say, oh, his life was basketball because that's what he loved to do and spend most of his time doing. For other people, they can say his life was his job because that's what he did all the time. That's what, that's what he loved to do. But for us, for us Christians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it should be evident to the whole world. People should recognize 
that about us. And what do you think? Is it better to be with the Lord in His presence? Or is it better to be in this world? Paul brought that up. And Paul said that it is far better for him to be in the presence of God. His desire was to be in the presence of the Lord. But he knew that God had a special work for him to carry out. And the same thing is for us. If God has not taken us yet to glory, it means that there's still a task for us to do. And we must take it serious. So what were some things that Paul was focused on? I want to give you three things that will help you grow and mature in your faith so that when you are tested, you are able to overcome. First thing to focus on, that Paul focused on. Focus on the glory of God. We have read, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we must behold the glory of the Lord. The second thing, the glory of Christ. The Bible tells us that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In case you are wondering what God is like in human form, we already know. Because God Himself came down from heaven, stepped into this world of suffering, and He suffered along with us. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to suffer. He suffered more than any of us ever could. So Jesus Christ, He is God in the flesh. He is God in human form. If you want to know what God is like, just look at Him. Look at Jesus. Third thing to focus on is the glory of heaven. The Bible says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Hebrews eleven sixteen, And this is what Paul was looking forward to. He was looking to that eternal city. He had his eyes set on these three things, on the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the glory of heaven. So in closing, I want to give an example of a great man of faith in the Old Testament who kept his eyes focused on what is unseen, and by doing so, he persevered. I want to point out what it says about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, 
not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going. Why? Because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. You see, Moses was looking towards glory. He was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations. A city not made with human hands, but a city that is made by God eternal. So the comfort of the children of God in the darkest hour of pain, in the midst of trial and persecution, has always been the hope of eternal glory. Christians are looking towards glory and have their eyes fixed on it. So, if this is the first time that you have heard about the glory of God and His majesty, if this is the first time that you have heard what it is that motivates the people of God to press on while they are suffering, I encourage you, I encourage you to come now. Today is the day of salvation. Come and behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to bear all of our sins. You see, we are all guilty of sin. We have all done something wrong in the eyes of God. And since God is just and holy, He must punish sin. But Jesus bore it all for us on the cross. Three days later, He was resurrected from the dead. And now He is at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says that if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. If you believe in your heart and with your mouth acknowledge that He is Lord, you will be saved. Let us finish with a, with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have this hope of glory in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have unveiled our eyes so we can see the glory of Jesus Christ. You did this work in us, O oh Lord. You deserve all the praise and the glory. Heavenly Father, we pray for those that have veils on their eyes. We pray, Lord, that you may take that veil away. We pray that you may give them eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that they may, they may understand that, that they are sinners in the hand of an angry God, and that the only way that they will be saved is if they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord God, we give you praise, glory, and honor tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.com.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 